Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome back to the CIS Budget Bunker for an unprecedented event. The CIS Budget Bunker was first discovered by Knights on the First Crusade in Greg Lindsay's basement in 1096. Since then, never has it been opened twice in one year. It was rumoured that King Baldwin III tried to open the bunker twice in one year and it led to his untimely death in 1163. It was said that Constantine XI attempted to open the budget bunker twice in one year and that led to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. And stories abound that on the back of the original version of the Australian Constitution are instructions for how to open the budget bunker twice in one year safely. It also, I'm told, has a recipe for Anzac biscuits, although, of course, when the Constitution was drafted, they were just called biscuits. Thank you for joining us today, we few. We happy few, perhaps the appropriate phrase from Henry V, on St Crispin's Day, here to analyse the St Crispin's budget. I have with me a very special guest from the Australian Financial Review, John Keogh. He's been studying the budget intimately for a week now, and he is here to give us his insights on this unprecedented second budget. John, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Uh, good afternoon, Simon. Terrific to be with you and the, and the CIS. Absolutely. So let's start with your impressions of this budget. Did we need a second budget this year? And did our veritable Henry V treasurer deliver on St Crispin's Day? Well, I think the ambition or motivation of this budget was to really set up and identify some of the economic and political challenges that the new government faces, Simon. Um, so they are that spending is running too fast ahead of tax revenues. Um, we have weak productivity and there's some other challenges coming down the pipeline with high energy prices and the such as well. Uh, what this budget really didn't do was actually set about fixing any of the problems. It's more designed to what Jim Chalmers says is set up a national conversation um, and identify some of the issues that might need to be addressed without actually uh, having any ambitions to address them yet. That's sort of been kicked the can down the road to probably next year, maybe to the, the May budget next year. Look, I don't think there's a problem with having a second budget. It's a new government. They want to set the economic parameters, the new sort of forecasts and inflationary environment. So I think it's helpful from that perspective to start talking about some of the challenges and the issues. But the real big test, of course, is going to actually be dealing with them. And, and the new government has, has not really tackled that yet. I think they want to try and build a bit of an narrative and, and public awareness for some of the um, difficult decisions uh, they, they may have to make. So why don't we start with some of those challenges and then we'll get to what the government actually did. Um, mm. In your piece uh, at the end of last week for the Financial Review, you talked about the NDIS. Um, mm. We were told in this budget that the NDIS will potentially by the end of the decade be the largest single government spending program. 
Now, mm. my then colleague, Andrew Baker, was warning about the cost blowout in the NDIS in 2012. If anything, of course, things have gotten worse. But can you explain just exactly how big a challenge the NDIS is to the budget? Yeah, look, the NDIS, uh, for want of a better phrase, is, is out of control uh, in terms of the cost. Um, the original cost envisaged by the Productivity Commission at the full scheme's maturity was about $13 billion a year. Then it became about $22 billion a year. Um, it's projected now to rise to about $52 billion uh, by 25-26, and it's growing at about 13.8% a year, and it's projected to hit almost $100 billion by 2032-33 in a decade's time. Um, so it's costing a lot more than anyone envisaged. Um, and there's really three big cost drivers of it, just to lay out what the facts of the situation are. Uh, one, people who are going onto it aren't coming off it like was in originally envisaged. Originally it was envisaged people might get onto it for, for a short to medium amount of time, particularly those with sort of less severe disabilities or, or challenges, and we'd invest in them they'd improve, they'd become a bit more independent and maybe they'd move to other uh, support programs that are less all-encompassing. Two, um, children, um, a lot more children on it than we, than we realise, and, and largely this is autism. Um, a lot of people on autism are now coming onto the NDIS of different severities. Um, about one in three participants overall on the NDIS have autism now. Um, I'm not sure that was originally envisaged when this program began. And three, the other big cost driver is um, people, you're not eligible to be on the NDIS if, you turn, if, you, if you're 65 or over, you can't join the NDIS. But if you're already on it and say you're 64 and you turn 65, you're eligible to stay on it. And a lot of those um, older people are staying on it because it's so much more generous than the aged care packages that the government provides uh, for home care packages, those sort of things. So they're the three big cost drivers um, worth pointing out, it's it's not means tested. There's no co-contribution. It's uncapped, uh, unlike a lot of other government support schemes as well. So it is extremely generous compared to the other government supports that are out there. And it's quite arbitrary about whether someone qualifies or not, because the definitions are all a bit fuzzy. Well, that's right. And so, I mean, one of the biggest problems with the NDIS that was obvious from the very get-go was that the NDIS cohort at the time, I think it was estimated to be about 325,000, was less than half the number of people who were then receiving disability support pension. So mm. not just including those kids with autism. And we saw, for example, the Adelaide trial site, which um, was designed to sort of test some of these assumptions about the NDIS, ended up enrolling no one but children with autism who were outside that initial scope. Um, it seems to me that part of the challenge that we have with the NDIS is the Productivity Commission scheme was designed as a workplace participation aid. The aim was to get people into the workforce and therefore off the DSP. Mm. We're not seeing any of that. But the scheme mm. was sold as here's a way to provide dignity to people with a disability. And how do you say that only half of the people on the DSP deserve dignity? And then if you open it up to everyone on the DSP, plus kids with autism, plus people who are um, over the age of 65 or 67, presumably it's going to raise with the pension age, uh, they deserve dignity too. But then you start looking at a cohort of a million plus 
at a scheme that was very expensive when it was designed for 325,000 people. Yeah, now there's about 550,000 people on and that's projected to grow to over 800,000 people by the end of the decade. And worth pointing out, uh, a lot of these projections of the forecast keep getting eclipsed too. So there is some upside risks. Uh, you're right, one of the original um, motivations for the scheme was to help people get back into work and their carers also. But uh, I think the evidence is it hasn't really increased workforce participation. So um, there are, um, well, you know, people that's investing in people, it's improving their lives, um, probably not to the extent in terms of making them more uh, self-responsible or getting them back into the workforce uh, as people were hoping. Uh, speaking of workforce participation, the government was touting two more workforce participation measures in this, one in childcare and one in um, maternity and paternity leave, parental mm. leave. Um, just take us through what the government has announced in those two areas and whether or not those measures are going to have a significant impress, uh, impact on workforce participation. Yes. So just on the childcare subsidy, um, they announced during the election implemented in this budget an extra $5.4 billion over four years for higher childcare subsidies. Uh, essentially, it would be particularly generous for people on or couples in middle to high income earner range. So I think it, I think it phases out around for a couple earning about $550,000 or so a year. Uh, so it's more generous than at current. The idea for this would be to increase workforce participation, particularly of females who might otherwise stay at home. Uh, I guess as an economist, the one question mark I'd have over this, Simon, is what's it doing to expand child um, childcare supply? Because uh, we know if you've got a fixed supply of something in economics and you push up a subsidy on it or push up demand for it through a subsidy, it just increases the price of it. And I think that's what we've probably seen in the past with uh, increased childcare subsidies is it, it ends up pushing up the price. And I, I, I would prefer to see the government encouraging the expansion of childcare supply, be it centres or uh, childcare workers, um, because that's the real shortage issue we have at the moment. Yes, it's not cheap for parents. I acknowledge that. It's, 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 it's a sort of a tricky few years when you're trying to balance work and children. Um, but that is a bit of a shortcoming, I think, that ultimately we'll probably see in another couple of years, it doesn't kick off until July next year, we'll probably see complaints from parents that childcare fees have gone up uh, by a lot. And that's probably because we're tipping a lot more money into it without increasing the supply of it. Well, not just that, right? It hasn't addressed the fundamental contradiction at the heart of the childcare system. We have, since we since the introduction of the quality framework about a decade ago, childcare has become this hybrid monster. In mm. one sense, it's designed to enable female workforce participation. In the other sense, it's designed to be an early childhood education mm. scheme. And in many respects, those two things are actually in conflict. If you yeah. say, what is it that parents need, particularly mothers need to get back into the workforce, it's cheap obviously safe, but cheap childcare that is flexible and designed to meet working parents' needs. Mm. However, if you wanted to deliver an early childhood education scheme, what you need is centre-based care, fixed hours, long-term, and I think significant participation from most of society. And those two things are just simply working 
at a cross to each other. So we have a system that's designed to do two contradictory things and the government's solution to that problem is put more and more money in on one side and hope that fixes it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think across the major parties, there's been a bit of an ideological difference, as you sort of point to, about what childcare is all about. I think, I mean, I wouldn't want to be too black and white on this, but, you know, as a general sort of rule, um, I think the Liberals have probably seen it more as a sort of workforce participation or babysitting sort of uh, um, opportunity to get mums back into the workforce. Labor emphasises more the sort of early childhood benefits of you know, kids getting educated at a younger age from three or years, three years or more, because I think some of the evidence does point to if you can get in, particularly for kids from lower socioeconomic families or, you know, those sort of areas, if you can make early interventions, then their, their educational achievements do improve, uh, improve over the longer term. Um, but there is an inherent sort of contradiction between those two things. And what we haven't yet seen, and this is flowing through, I think, or will flow through in aged care, we haven't yet seen action on the government's rhetoric about increasing pay for childcare workers. Now, one of the trade-offs, I think, and one of the reasons why we saw the unions so strongly backing the quality framework back in 2013 was this, uh, let's say, recompense from uh, increasing wages for more professionalised staff. And we've yet to see that flow through, but given that the staff costs are by far the largest expense for most childcare centres, if Labor does get its way and mm. these workers get paid a lot more, that too will only make childcare more expensive and again, work against the participation model. Yeah, there's no free lunch in any of this. I mean, um, I think probably most of us would probably acknowledge, you know, childcare workers aren't paid particularly well. Uh, I do have some personal sympathy towards them earning more money at a sort of conceptual level. But then the, the sort of the sort of trade-off of that is that parents are already complaining about high fees. It's very unaffordable. Um, so obviously, if you push up the wages in the sector, uh, that's going to make it less, less affordable. And again, so there's no easy solution in this. Um, the government Maybe, maybe it'll come in and, and, and give higher pay to childhood workers as it plans to do in the aged care sector, but that, that doesn't come cheap either. And then, I mean, they're planning to do that in aged care. Um, does that mean that uh, aged care is going to start to suck workforce employees from other care sectors of the economy too if suddenly they get a big sort of uh, government-mandated increase or government-paid increase in their wage? Well, and I think that's probably one of the challenges. I mean, so the the budget outlines three priorities. Uh, one is this investment in um, a modern economy, which I think the government probably calls its childcare package and its its parental leave package as that investment. Another one of them is providing cost of living relief. Um, I feel like you know, well, it's you don't want to put too much of the boot into the government for, for this. It's hard for them to um, provide too much in the way of additional funding because of our inflation issue. But it's not clear to me the government did much at all to provide cost of living relief. And certainly what we've seen subsequent to the budget is the polls say people don't think it did anything for cost of living. Yeah, well, 
I'm I'm thankful they didn't pour a bit more money into the economy because I mean cost of living relief I think in the eyes of voters out there is probably cash handouts or the like, and that's the last thing this economy needs at the moment um, with high inflation. We've already getting quite a bit of cash handouts or tax refunds uh, from the previous government's measures. For example, the lower middle income tax offset was doubled and it's going to flow through for anyone who um, files their tax return post July. So a lot of people would have done that recently and now be getting those higher tax offset refunds coming through. So there actually is a reasonable amount of inbuilt support already. I definitely don't think we want to be adding to that in a pro-cyclical inflationary way, given we saw last week inflation's already 7.3%. Reserve Bank said yesterday it's going to hit at least 8%. Um, so I think it's it's wise for the government to show spending restraint, not just on cash handouts, but more generally. I mean, I think actually probably the government could be doing more just to pull down and pull back from contributing to aggregate demand in the economy at the moment, given that uh, unemployment's very low, inflation's high. If ever there's a time for a government to reduce its footprint on the economy, it's this sort of environment. Uh, what did you think of some of those forecasts in the budget? I mean, I think... If there's a, a point that could be made about the desire of the government to have a mini budget in October, it was really about trying to reset expectations from mm. the March budget's very optimistic view of the economy. Um, but I still think that being said, the government is predicting a Goldilocks scenario where inflation reduces slowly over time, mm. growth remains relatively solid. I mean, I think perhaps the most interesting forecast for a government that was uh, elected on this pledge of increasing real wages. The government is predicting a very modest real wage increase just before the next election, um, which seemed to be quite convenient to me. Um, What what did you think of those forecasts? Was anything that really stood out to you? Yeah, look, I think on commodity prices and the budget bottom line into the medium term, they're pretty conservative. I think what Chalmers has done is if commodity prices end up staying high in six months' time, he'll be able to say, actually, I've improved the budget by X billion dollars. So he's certainly sandbagged it a bit, building a bit of padding to deliver a better budget outcome unless things turn really gloomy in the international economy. On the economic forecast, um, they're similar to what the Reserve Bank yet, uh, said yesterday. Um, I mean, the economy is going to slow down quite a bit in 2023, 2024 because of those interest rate rises, but it needs to at the end of the day. Um, both those institutions are only tipping unemployment to edge up a bit over 4% over the next couple of years. Uh, if they could achieve no recession, unemployment going from 35 to a bit over 4% over the next couple of years, that would be a pretty good outcome. That would be threading the needle, or as you put it, that would be a Goldilocks scenario. But I think that's going to be easier said than done, given everything that's going on in the world economy, tightening monetary policy, high inflation. Once inflation sort of rampant in your economy, it's very hard to wring it out and get it under control. And, you know, the United States, the UK are finding out now, maybe maybe we're only a step behind behind them. Uh, and we saw this week the Reserve Bank increased interest rates again by 25 basis points. I think that was sort of broadly in line with expectations. A number of commentators, including my colleague here, Peter Tulip, were 
suggesting the RBA should have gone harder. Of course, mm. I think a number of people have criticised the RBA for not going earlier on interest mm. rates when it was clear that inflation was was coming. What do you think of the RBA's performance and the extent to which it's contributed or not to some of these budgetary challenges? Yeah, well, there's no doubt they obviously got it wrong with their forward guidance last year, suggesting that interest rates weren't going to rise until 2024. We've now had seven interest rate rises in 2022. I'm probably going to get an eighth next month. So they badly messed that up. Um, and then um, they started a rate hiking cycle too late um, in May this year. It's now a bit pretty obvious with the benefit of hindsight, I should point out, but some people were pointing it out at the time, but not as loudly. They should have got things underway arguably earlier this year. Maybe it was late last year. Hard to know. We we're coming out of lockdowns in Victoria and New South Wales in the back end of last year. Uh, but they did allow things to get away. Now, it's not just because they were late to the party that we have high inflation. Obviously, the war in Ukraine involving Russia um, and the sanctions on Russia have driven up global energy prices. But that's not the only reason we have high inflation. Uh, we also have in high inflation because there was too much stimulus in the economy from central banks, from governments during COVID. And the economy rebounded a lot quicker than we thought. And households are cashed up. They've been spending strongly. Even after six or seven interest rate rises, retail sales are still going pretty pretty well. Uh, and that's sort of testament to the idea that actually people have got a lot of money. They've built up uh, over $250 billion in extra savings during COVID. And they've been deploying that in recent months as the economy has been open. So I think there's a couple of things that we want to touch on before we uh, close the door until May next year on the CIS Budget Bunker. And you are here on the CIS with me, Simon Cowan, Research Director, and John Keogh from the AFR. Um, energy prices, you suggested that, that you know, energy prices have been a key contributor to our inflationary issues. The budget predicts that energy prices are basically going to go up by 50% over the next two years, an extraordinary mm -hmm. increase. We already know in the United Kingdom the pressures, the political pressures that have arisen as a result of energy prices and i think there's a significant challenge um, on energy costs coming if there's a cold winter in europe but how do you think that first that energy price increase is going to play out and mm. secondly to what extent is that going to impact the government's major policy initiatives in the renewable transition yeah, it's a good question i mean a 56 percent rise in electricity prices is forecast over two years that's uh, that's a fairly meaty increase, isn't it? Um, I think for the government, they're obviously going to look at interventions in the gas market, the electricity market, to try and bring prices down. That may work to an extent in the short term, but I guess they're going to be conscious of what impact that has on investment over the medium term and potentially could reduce supply. Um, yes, we're exporting our energy and gas to the rest of the world at very high prices, and we're, we're sort of paying global prices in a sense. But also, you know, some of the state governments, particularly in Victoria and New South Wales, have um, crimped the supply of gas. New exploration in Victoria was banned for a decade. New South Wales has been very slow to get project approvals off the ground for Narrabri. So um, we have seen um, particularly uh, restriction of state government policies. As for the net zero 
the climate transition to green energy. I've just filed a column for the Financial Review today suggesting that, um, well, what's happened in Germany at the moment, they're turning back on coal, they're turning back on uh, nuclear energy, even though they've been a big investor in renewables because of what's happened in the Ukraine with gas being cut off. It does bring into question how quickly we can rush this energy transition to net zero. And uh, maybe some realism is going to come back into this now um, when you see countries like Germany, not just Germany, going back to coal and, and nuclear. I think it's, it's going to be a difficult message for the government to sell um, that renewables will be cheaper uh, when people see their gas bill going up. Now, renewables might be cheap marginal costs when the sun's shining, the wind's blowing. But as we know, there's a whole other energy infrastructure system that needs to be built with that. And that's, that's going to be a very expensive build out. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, and I think to be fair to those who are advocating for this change, I mean, one of the big issues is that we haven't had a coherent policy in energy of any sort at either state or federal level for a decade. And so yep. we're now, in many respects, reaping the consequences of spending a decade glaring at our navel and desperately trying to overturn any policy that gets up. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. Um, it has been rather shambolic uh, at federal and state level. There's been a lot of different energy policies. They haven't been coordinated. They've been working against each other. Uh, now you've got sort of governments making sort of heavy-handed interventions, taking bets on particular technology or winners. We've got Daniel Andrews in Victoria saying he wants to ban coal by 2035. And renationalise the generators, right? Yeah, renationalise that, uh, put taxpayer and superannuation money into green renewables. Um, that's that's interesting. Uh, let's just say uh, I have my doubts on that. Um, not whether it'll be cheaper, more affordable, more reliable, cleaner energy. Uh, I'm not so sure. So... There's a tricky transition um, in front for the economy and it, it will be a massive uh, economic disruption for a country that is very dependent on fossil fuels. There, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, I would argue as an economist um, that we probably just should have had a simple cleaner mechanism, just a simple carbon price uh, that allowed certainly for investment decisions to be made by business. Uh, we've put too much pressure on the energy sector to bring the uh, emissions down and i think we don't necessarily need the world's highest carbon price we don't need to be out leading the front it could be something in line with where the world average is at uh, but it'll probably be a cleaner and cheaper mechanism and, and give a lot more investment certainly to businesses as opposed to now governments sort of picking winners building sort of energy infrastructure themselves and we know governments are pretty pretty bad at picking losers actually mm. uh, interesting comment coming in from benjamin robson isn't it likely the phrase the recession we had to have is going to be reprised very soon? It's an interesting question, Ben. Um, it's interesting because Jim Chalmers, the current treasurer, did his PhD doctorate on the, the treasurer who said that, Paul Keating, the recession we had to have. Uh, look, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Australia is plausible we do avoid a recession. The one thing we've got going for us in this country is we don't have a wage price spiral yet like the US and the UK do that's contributing to their high inflation. If we get a wage price spiral and maybe Labor's industrial relations changes could could be a contributor to that over the coming years, that would be, uh, that would be hard to avoid a recession then because I think the RBI would have to raise rates a lot more aggressively 
clamp down on inflation and probably drive the economy into recession. But, uh, I mean, hopefully we can avoid it and have a soft landing. Well, one of the things that they do say about Australia is that we have skated by on our luck for a long time. Look, it would be remiss of us here in the budget bunker not to talk about debt and deficits. The Treasurer and Prime Minister are both spruiking the massive reduction in the deficit as a result of fiscal conditions improving. Um, we do, of course, see a deterioration in the bottom line across the forward estimates and the re-emergence, if it ever disappeared, of a structural budget deficit. Um, of course, deficits and debt become a lot bigger issue when you're paying interest rates with fours and fives and sixes in front of them rather than when interest rates are 0.1%. Uh, what did you make of the rhetoric around uh, reducing the deficit? The, the government says that it's a priority to get the budget back under control. One, do you believe that that is a priority for the government? And two, what do you think they're going to do about it? Yeah, we do have a bit of an issue in this country because we've got record high terms of trade, which is sort of export prices relative to import prices. Uh, but at the same time, we're still running structural budget deficits of, say, around about $50 billion a year. Now, previously, when we had um, tax revenue at these levels, um, we we're running surpluses of about the equivalent of $20 billion a year or so. So the, the reason we've got structural deficit issue is because spending so much higher. I'll just share this doc, just share my screen with you, I think, if I can get this up, just to, um, just to, just to illustrate this. Can you see that, Simon, the audience there on, on your screen? No, no, not yet. You might have to okay. explain that one to us. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just attempting to show it. But, um, yeah, essentially what's happened is there's been a big blowout in government expenditure by about 2% of GDP a year. Um, and just get this up now. How's that looking now? Oh, yes, there we go. So you can see the blue line here on the left-hand side where average government has been around about 25 to COVID. Then we had the huge stimulus hit. But now it's settled back down at around 27% of GDP after COVID. And that's about $50 billion a year extra. And that's because of the NDIS, aged care, health, defence and interest payments as well. Um, so somewhere the government's going to have to try and close that gap. Now, the government made some um, very modest um, savings in this budget. Um, they weren't big savings. Uh, and I think ultimately what's going to need to happen is the government uh, is going to either need to cut spending more or more likely, I think this government's more likely to increase taxes. And when they increase taxes, and it's interesting, actually, we've got a comment from uh, my colleague, Peter Tulip, or at least someone in interpreting, uh, pretending as Peter Tulip, debt to GDP is protected to remain around 30%. Is that a problem? Um, I suppose my initial response to that would be, I would be very cautious about a projection of debt to GDP remaining around 30% because we've seen a number of projections that it would be stable at a lower level than that, and that has yet to come to pass. Um, so I would be less confident that a, a budget in structural deficit will remain at that debt level. Um, what's your sense on, on that, the sustainability long-term of some of these things, John? 
Yeah, I think Peter's talking about net debt there is about 30% of GDP. Gross debt's a bit over 40. Look, I mean, by international standards, it's not massively high. I definitely acknowledge that. I think the issue is more having a structural budget deficit that would uh, perennially be in a deficit for the next decade, but particularly when we've got high terms of trade, record commodities boom at the moment, that sort of situation, you'd expect the budget to be closer to balance or in surplus. And I sort of see the structural budget deficit of being the bigger problem, a permanent structural budget deficit that could, down the track, become a bit of an issue with the debt, particularly in international sort of capital markets uh, becoming more volatile. We don't know where bond yields are going. Um, the debt, there are, I think we're going to be paying about $70 billion a year in interest by the end of the forward estimates in about four years' time, according to the budget forecast. Um, so I do think it would be better if we had a stronger f- fiscal position, given the, the high commodity prices in terms of trade. Debt's not an immediate problem, but we do need to be we do need to be conscious of it as well, particularly in a sort of small open economy too. And each step that we take further down this deficit path and further down this debt path makes it less likely that we'll see reductions in the tax burden. And already, I think we're seeing rumours and movement that the Labor government would really like to either reshape or abandon the stage three tax cuts. Um, Certainly they've allowed their allies and supporters in the media and elsewhere to front run a case on that for them. Um, Do you think that there is a substantial likelihood of this Labor government perhaps reprising some of the tax increases that have come before it, um, thinking, you know, maybe a resource super profits tax or a carbon tax or, um, you know, a, re- a reduction in capital gains tax benefits or, or yeah. um, you know, something uh, along the lines. I mean, we've already seen some indications that the government still hasn't abandoned its franking credits uh, obsession. Where do you think the tax increases might come from? Yeah, well, I think there will be tax increases um, because I don't think this government is prepared to make massive spending cuts that would be otherwise required on the other side of the ledger. I think think the previous government, to be fair to them, I don't think the previous government had the courage to do that either. No, that's true. And um, look, I think there was something significant yesterday because in the Reserve Bank's statement, they said they expect inflation to remain above the 3% top of the band beyond 2024 or to at least the end of 2024. So uh, in other words, 2025. Now, Jim Chalmers has spoken about he doesn't want monetary and fiscal policy to be in conflict. Now, the the July 1, 2024, that's when the tax cuts start. I think it's becoming increasingly likely the Treasurer will use that high inflation figure to argue why uh, the tax cuts shouldn't go ahead or they need to be trimmed down or they need to be deferred or not as big. I think that's probably a likely debate that will happen. Uh, beyond that, I could also see them looking to broaden other tax bases, um, resource profits, uh, resource tax, maybe not the super profits tax per se on all minerals, but um, the petroleum resource rent tax. I think they're probably trying to extract a little bit more money out of that. And then you might see a situation. I don't necessarily think they'll go after franking credits again, although there are some things around the margin in the budget around share buybacks, which do affect franking credits. But you might see, um, for example, I think two that I could conceivably see this government go after are trusts and and maybe the capital gains tax concession discount as well. I wouldn't be surprised if things like that come onto the table as well. But probably not franking credits, 
probably not negative gearing, I would say. I think it's interesting that you raised the point about uh, the state three tax cuts and the, the treasurer's comments. I thought it was deeply disingenuous of the treasurer to raise the issue of the additional cost of that stage three tax cuts because inflation has driven up the mm. tax burden on people and therefore returning some of that increased burden that has been created by inflation driven by government spending is somehow the fault of taxpayers and therefore oh now the tax cuts cost more yes they cost more because with inflation at seven or eight percent people are paying a lot more tax through bracket creep yeah that's exactly right he pointed out on radio a week or so ago that uh, the tax cuts over 10 years would cost about $11 billion more than previously forecast. So I think it was something like $254 billion versus $243 from memory. Um, and that sort of wowed the interviewer on the ABC. But uh, the sort of unspoken truth, as you alluded to there, was because the reason they'll cost more in a higher inflationary environment is because the government will be collecting more gross tax revenue from taxpayers because of bracket creep. Uh, because people will be being pushed into higher tax brackets because of um, wage inflation, nominal wage inflation, not necessarily real wage increases. No, which and is going so worse that's than worse than worse. It's a sort of funny sort of way. It actually makes the argument for personal income tax relief stronger. But um, if you treat tax cuts as a cost to the budget only and ignore some of the supply side benefits of you know, encouraging people, incentive to work, attracting foreign skilled labourers as well, then... And, uh, yeah, we've got to consider those things as well. I want to close our session here at the CIS with uh, AFR's John Keogh. I want to close by putting on our forecasting hats for the May budget next year. The government has copped a fair bit of criticism in the media. Ironically, I, I think a lot of criticism from its own side, if I could use that word, about its lack of vision for a longer term or a longer term strategy for the budget. Do you think the May budget will contain that strategy or will it again, will we see the Labor government sort of actioning its its election promises, handing out to some of the groups that it promised it would give handouts to, but otherwise sticking the course? Yeah, look, I think we're going to really judge this government on its performance of the May budget. You give them a, a sort of pass for October budget, although it was a little bit underwhelming. I think we'll see what they're really made of in the May budget next year, I think, because that's when they're going to need to make difficult decisions. I suspect um, that we're probably going to see some tax increases, whether we'll actually see tax reform. I'm hopeful we do, um, like maybe broadening some bases, but reducing other taxes such as personal income tax and the like, or even company tax. I don't think that's on the table, for example. But um, would we see an increase or broader GST? Probably not. Um, so I suspect I'll probably be a little bit disappointed, but I'm, I'm holding out to, to give them a benefit of the doubt and judge them on um, their performance at the May budget, because I think that's the big one we're going to have to judge them on. Fantastic. Look, and thank you so much, John, for joining us today. And thank you for the viewers for coming into the CIS Budget Bunker with us for an unprecedented second time 
this year. I think the trip might have been slightly underwhelming uh, in terms of both and budgets, in, in, to be fair. Uh, but at least you are here getting the analysis from the best in the business, John, and from me here in the Budget Bunker. Uh, on Liberty, we'll return in two weeks' time. We've got a bumper schedule of guests for you for the rest of the year. But until then, it's thank you and goodbye from the CIS Budget Bunker.